Welcome to the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Thanks for tuning in, people. Alex Nicely here. Um, here I am with Richard Thompson. And if you don't know Richard Thompson, well, uh, you're in for a treat. He has presented us today with three articles to discuss. One called Genotype Correlates with the Natural History of Severe Bile Salt Export Pump Deficiency. Another, along much the same lines, ATP7B genotype in chronic liver disease treatment, outcomes in Wilson disease, worse survival with loss of function variants, and then cherry on the top, Odovixabat treatment in progressive familial intrahepatic cholestasis, a randomized placebo-controlled phase three trial. If we're talking about intrahepatic cholestasis in children, uh, for 20 years, Richard's jelly fingerprints have been all over that theme. For those of you who are wondering how Richard and I know one another goes a long, long back. You may have wondered what my vowels are doing on the European side of the Atlantic. And that's because Richard, after a few collaborations, reached out and plucked me out of Texas into London, where he had 15 years cause to regret that before I retired, but he'll tell you about that too. Richard, welcome. Hi, Alex, and, and it's great to be here, and uh, lovely to see you, even if uh, anyone, anyone else can only hear us. But uh, um, yeah, I, it, was, um, it was a long time ago now that uh, we started working together and eventually uh, I uh, saw you face to face for the first time at a ASLD meeting. Cracking and, disappointment, uh, but there we are. Well, it was, anyway, <laughs> it's in distant memory now, so uh, let's leave it at that. Um, but anyway, I was uh, sufficiently minded that uh, uh, I suggested maybe uh, you'd want to come and work with us. And um, that uh, I think that turned out to be great fun. It did. It was like being asked if I wanted to open a bar and grill on a great corner, except the corner was on Mars. Well, move, <laughs> uh, move to London? Yeah, whoa, I'm, I'm up for that. Anyhow, well, living I in London... You know, that's nothing compared to moving to uh, Western Hungary, I would have thought, really, Alex. But uh... Uh, London is stranger than Bangkok, let me tell you. I mean, Richard, you came up from Leeds, bootstrapped yourself to Oxford, and then began your steady decline into South London, King's College Hospital. Well, King's you, College... brought up, you brought up the mention of vowels at the beginning, Alex, and the, the truth is that um, my vowels definitely started off northern, but I've been in the south for so long now that uh, they are, sound much more like I'm from the south. Um, and But I think, you know, that trajectory, which you mentioned very briefly, I mean, there was no real planning in that. No one, I didn't leave medical school wanting to be a paediatric hepatologist, least of all, um, try and uh, chase genes. Um, but, you know, I did work very early on at King's and just uh, realised that I thought liver disease was really interesting and um, came back for more. And um, and I think I have to give credit to um, Alex Mowat, of course, um, who not only founded the service at King's and, and uh, really got things moving, but he very early on said, you need to go and do some research, Richard, in a proper lab and sent me off to UCL for four years, um, which is where I learned anything about genetics and got this started, really. So uh, uh, absolute credit to Alex. Let's also 
talk a little bit about King's College Hospital. King's College Hospital, as, as I understand it, was a uh, nothing special. It maintained a venereal disease clinic and took care of the grannies living around there until one day it acquired uh, a liver unit. And then within a few months, well, or so it seemed, all of a sudden it was a liver unit, uh, a tail wagging a dog of a hospital. It does a few other things apart from look after liver disease, Alex, I think, to be fair. But you're absolutely right. And obviously, we have to give credit to, to Roger Williams in that respect. And he uh, started what uh, became an extremely successful adult liver unit and had the insight to think that uh, there was scope for um, expanding that in, in paediatrics, uh, even though I'm pleased to say that paediatric liver disease is still um, much less of a population impact than adult liver disease. But, uh, you know, it was uh, the recruitment of Alex uh, Mowat um, uh, by uh, Roger that really started that expansion into to paediatric liver disease as a separate specialty uh, in the UK, at least. And then the successive captaincy of Georgina Mielivagani. And then, obviously, then Georgina, um, very much after Alex's uh, uh, terribly early demise, um, Georgina stepped in um, and uh, really... Um, took it from strength to strength after that. And uh, on the way, we've acquired a lot of extremely um, you know, skillful and insightful colleagues who contribute to the department now. Well, I think that we have patted each other on the shoulder quite long enough. <laughs> and let's go to, uh, to Dr. Nyagam's paper, ATP7B genotype. I think that this is a lovely example of coloring inside the lines not really going out into new, white, untouched territory where all you can say is, here be monsters, but instead, do you know if they have no gene product at all, then you'd rather expect them to do worse. So, I mean, I th you're right. That is the essence of, of the paper. And I think, you know, we try and find disease genes. And in the case of Wilson disease, that happened quite a while ago now. Um, we try to understand the biology after that of what the gene product is doing. And we've um, then really the, the key thing is understanding how that biological change leads to the phenotype that we see and what the biological role of the protein is. And then even more difficult is to understand exactly how reductions in that biological process end up with the phenotype and then hopefully come back and loop back and suggest how changes, the genetic changes that we see in patients correlate with the phenotype, taking in mind what the biological process is underlying that is. And then if we're doing this prospectively, then obviously we can then start to think about what would be suitable therapeutic options to try and overcome that biological defect. Of course, in this case, the, the, the therapeutic interventions which we discussed in this paper are obviously chelation, which has been there for a long time. Um, and we know is not perfect, but clearly has saved uh, a huge number of people from um, the extensive liver disease and neurological disease of Wilson disease. But um, you know, now, uh, as you've hinted at, I think we can see that there is some genetic correlations with the limitations of the treatment. And I would suggest that that has now, you know, probably has a very good biological correlate. Um, and, you know, so I think we're getting into the territory now, where not only does 
genetics help us make diagnoses. Sometimes it makes a diagnosis. Sometimes it helps us make a diagnosis. But I think we can begin to understand um, how reduction in function leads to disease and start thinking on an individual basis what their prognosis is and whether their treatment and maybe their degree of follow-up and uh, monitoring might be different based on the exact changes to the underlying gene. This is a lovely, um, a lovely prospect, but may I suggest that it's a bit simplistic? Because what you require here is a gene in which defects are very, very sizably penetrant. That is, in which the background, the rest of the organism, doesn't make that much of a difference. That gene is going to bull its way to the fore. Well, you're, of course, completely correct. And genetics started off really just looking at very high penetrance alleles in genes that have very strong correlation with the disease phenotype. And you're completely right that in, particularly in the cholestatic disorders that um, we are both super interested in, um, that one-to-one um, -one correlation between genotype and phenotype does frequently diverge. And I'm sure that's other genetic variants and other environmental factors that come into that. So yes, uh, this is, you know, has limited um, impact. Um, but at the same time, we can detect just by looking at patients in this case, not by actually really digging into um, in vitro modeling or anything like that, we can see a genotype phenotype correlation. But it is, yes, you're absolutely right, it's only part of the explanation. Um, diet and other genes, for instance, are probably impactful. Let's, let's carry along here. Let's move a little ways away from King's College Hospital. Let's go toward Borough Market. And let's head into the Warren of Streets, the old streets, around Borough Market. And if you look all the way, see, see that corner up ahead? That's Bill Sykes disappearing around the corner off on his way to do a crime. That's what it is with BCEP, isn't it? With genotype correlates with the natural history of severe bile salt export pump deficiency. You know that Bill has had his hand in something nasty, but you can't quite put your finger on what it is. You can't make the connection. That is, the penetrance of BSCP defects is incomplete. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I um, would be very happy to see the day uh, disappear where we talk about uh, Mendelian inheritance of disease, because uh, even in the, the best characterized diseases of sickle cell or cystic fibrosis, there is a, you know wide variation in the phenotype associated to um, you know in, some, in the case of sickle cell exactly the same genetic variant homozygous in every individual. So um, then it just gets more complicated in the diseases that we're talking about, where there is also huge variation in the genetics of the primary gene as well. So I 100% agree. I think that, you know, the idea of full penetrance is actually holding back a lot of uh, thinking about genetic disease. And even the names, because they, they like names autosomal dominant, for instance, dominance suggests that it's actually having an interfering effect on the, the good allele, which in many cases is not true. And uh, we look talking about haploinsufficiency, where it's just a lack of one allele is having the effect. That's not a dominant um, action. That's not having a, a dominant effect over the 
good allele on the other copy. So I think the whole nomenclature is actually um, holding people's thinking back and we have to switch to actually talking about, even in some of these fairly apparently high penetrance conditions, we're still talking about a contribution to the phenotype. And that's, of course, and you'll be pleased to hear this, of course, we need the, the biological correlates to support the contribution to disease, and that's where we still need um, histopathology, for instance. Always happy to see histopathology given the tip of the hat. Let's go to news that we can use, as the um, old broadcasters used to say. In terms of BSCP disease, the interventions are a lot more drastic, or can be a lot more drastic, than those available in Wilson disease. Wilson disease, if you catch it early enough, you give the kids zinc, and they, they totter along. But there's no such give zinc approach yet, or at least there hasn't been, in BSCP deficiency or the intrahepatic cholestasis. There you have to resort to surgery that results in depletion of the body's bile salt pool. Are you now moving, given the basis, given information on genetic status, to saying to a family, look, we could try the Hail Mary pass of performing a biliary diversion in your kid, but based on what we know about his genes, it's not going to work. In some cases, absolutely correct. We do that. And and so obviously the, the really important message about the surgical treatments of our PFIC or various forms of intrahepatic cholestasis um, really take, took a leap, leap forward in recent years with the NAPID consortium led by uh, Henke and Vercard. And the first paper uh, with uh, Dan Wiesels as the first author looked at BSEP deficiency, which is the cleanest of these intrahepatic cholestasis because the mechanism is um, a defect in bile acid transport. And, you know, visionary people long before I got involved in this field had the idea of intervening and diverting bile and predominantly into the stoma um, from um, the gallbladder via a jejunal loop. And there's no question that there's many um, publications showing that some patients had derived significant benefit for it. But this um, retrospective analysis in NAPAD was the first time where we showed not only that there was um, benefit, but also that there was a correlation, for instance, with the reduction in serum bile acids, uh, and also uh, that there was a correlation with genotype in terms of response, which is, as you say, you know, starts to become clinically useful because we can, in some cases, unfortunately, say that really um, uh, either surgical depletion of bile acids via diversion of bile or almost certainly um, pharmacological interruption of the enteropathic circulation, which both of which rely on significant quantities of bile acids reaching bile or reaching the terminal ileum for either intervention to have a, an effect. So there is a, a subgroup of patients where really there's clear-cut evidence that if you've got predicted to have no BSEP protein at all, that's if you've got two protein truncating mutations, then there is really expected to be very little benefit from either surgical or pharmacological interruption to enteropathic circulation, which is clearly um, frustrating, but they are also the same patients that you and I showed um, had the highest risk of malignancy as well. And so at the moment, 
for such patients, there is little option other than liver transplantation, which is luckily extremely effective. You said the pH word, pharmacologic, and that takes us to odovixabet. What is odovixabet and what does it do? So there's a number of drugs um, in development and uh, two that have now got licenses and they both have in common the, the, the four letters at the end, IBAT or ileal bile acid transporter and this is these are inhibitors of the sodium dependent uh, bile acid transporter which is expressed in the terminal ileum but also in cholangiocytes and in the kidney and um but the drugs that we've been using so far odovixabat and marilixabat in in children are essentially non-absorbed and block the reuptake of bile acids in the terminal ileum so uh, what that means is it diverts uh, bile acids into the colon and they're lost via the feces uh, with exactly the same intention of the surgical intervention which is to uh, deplete the bile salt pool size and in an ideal world what we're aiming to do is to reduce the pool size such uh, to such a level that actually the bile acids that are being asked to be transported by the liver across the canalicular membrane are less than the capacity of the liver to transport bile acids. And if that is achieved, then you won't have accumulation of bile acids in the liver. And in clinical practice, we won't see the spillover of bile acids into the peripheral circulation, where we can measure them routinely. So that's a knife's edge to tread, isn't it? If you're not, if, if you deplete the body's bile acid pool that severely, then aren't you going to have to keep on giving water-soluble, fat-soluble vitamins forever? Well, that's a very good question, and it's clearly something which we have been monitoring very carefully because there is that potential. I actually think that the patients who I've just described, where the accumulation of bile acids in the liver is such that uh, the liver actually becomes um, biochemically normal, actually have increased bile acid transport as a consequence because the liver is no longer intoxicated by these bile acids. So um, some of them do require uh, continued fat-soluble vitamins, um, uh, but several I know where they have got normal levels of serum bile acids, normal liver biochemistry, actually have successfully come off fat-soluble vitamins uh, and seem to be doing very well. You know, the follow-up now with some of these patients is five, seven years. So we haven't got patients 10, 20 years out, but uh, the early indications are that there is a subpopulation who really have got a fantastic response and, you know, and all biochemical and even imaging um, appear to have no chronic liver disease at all, which would be fantastic. If Isn't it that, that would be fantastic. Richard, I've just received a high sign from our producer that it is time, almost time, to say goodbye. But I want absolutely to point to one remarkable phenomenon associated with a different form of intrapatic cholestasis, that is, that associated with defects in ATP, HB1. We all know that once you plug a normal liver into an ATP, HB1 deficient body and start pumping normal quantities of bile acids into that ATP, HB1 deficient bile, a bowel, excuse me, then within a couple of weeks, that liver turns into literally foie gras, a marked degree of steatosis. 
Now, I've been trying to convince you that if you want your yacht, then you should simply find out what is being transmitted from that gut to the liver to make it turn into butter and find out how to block that. And then you could make any Russian oligarch green with envy at the size of your boat. <laughs> you could only put that in a bottle and sell it. But now my question is, the Odovixabat and its analogs, do those prevent that sort of fatty change after liver transplantation and FIC1 disease? It looks quite promising. Um, I think actually FIC1 disease, and as you know very well, is a multi-system disease. The gene is widely expressed and we showed a long time ago, and it's been several uh, investigators have shown that there's an abnormality in the intestine, and particularly of FXR signaling. And FXR activation in the terminal ileum is the mechanism by which we normally monitor and maintain our levels of the bar salt pool size. And so um, in there's a lot of that uh, inhibition of bar salt uh, synthesis that goes back from the intestine back to the liver. And, um, but that is kept in check in the patients untransplanted by the relative cholestasis in the liver. But once you put a normal liver, it can transport bile acids very effectively, but you have still got the loss of um, separating a lot of uh, suppression from the intestine, you actually end up with an increased bile salt pool size and you have a hyperdynamic enterohepatic circulation when you have a normal liver with an FIC1 intestine. And I believe it's this hyperdynamic circulation that ends up resulting in the diarrhea and the foie gras that you describe. And quite logically, further depletion of bile acids post-transplant does seem in a non-randomized fashion and the data so far look encouraging. I am so glad to have had a chance to talk with you about this, but our time is up. <laughs> I, I've had, can't, maybe well, we can get you. Maybe we can get you for a repeat performance at some other time to go into other aspects of these disorders. However, as you know, at the end of these Espigan podcasts, Espigan prides itself on being a multinational, a transnational group for the advancement of understanding and treatment of gastroenterologic and liver disease. But we each come from our own backgrounds. Yours happens to be uh, Leeds, despite your disguise with Southern English vowels. <laughs> and is there something, a song perhaps, that you'd like to share with us that is a bit of England for you? Oh, well, um, I am, it seems, English, not only by um, my immediate ancestors, but um, my son, who uh, shares Alex's birthday for people that um, just 40 years uh, later, um, did um, 23 and Me and showed that uh, he at least is um, pretty much 100% Northwest European. So by inference, I think I probably am as well. So I think I probably am English as far as um, genetics can tell. Uh, not just by birth. So uh, you wanted a song of English origin, and I think I thought about various things, and uh, for partly for reasons which we'll come to in a second, um, I wondered about something of the uh, genre of uh, English art songs. And um, one of the proponents of that is uh, a gentleman who uh, died about 70 years ago called 
uh, Roger Quilter. And he wrote a load of songs on various topics about uh, some of them based on Shakespearean text and some of them just about uh, English um, natural history and things. And as it is April and it is uh, spring, it doesn't feel like it today, but spring is uh, apparently on its way. Um, I chose the song uh, Spring is at the Door uh, by Roger Quilter. Uh, as a, a song to share with the audience. And um, as Alex also knows very well, is I'm lucky enough to have four children, um, and um, one of them, Clemmy, um, is on a mission to um, make singing her uh, professional endeavour. And um, so I asked her, um, Clemmy Thompson, and her friend uh, Alexander Bradford uh, to accompany her and uh, they recorded freshly for us uh, Roger Quilter's uh, Spring is at the Door. Richard, that's charming. And I'm sure that the song, when we hear it, will be charming too. You haven't changed a bit. Um, still silver-tongued and still far smarter than I'll ever be. <laughs> Lovely to be with you again. Um, Alex, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I think um, we can uh, hold our own in a conversation. I don't think there's any one-sided nature to it at all. Uh, and it's been a pleasure to uh, share a few of these um, thoughts um, uh, with you and the, the wider Espagan audience. Um, I'm sure many of them knew much of it, but I hope... Uh, the way we've discussed it is uh, entertaining and hopefully educational as well. <laughs>